Bienvenidos al Mestizo Podcast, the show for the mixed people of the mixed church. On this podcast, we explore the complicated challenges of being part of, serving in, and growing a migrant church in el siglo XXI. As first-generation migrants age out of their leadership and the Mestizo Church transitions to the second and third generation, how does the migrant church continue to thrive? What should a migrant church look like today? These questions and more will be explored together with your hosts, Emmanuel Padilla and la Dra. Elizabeth Conde Frazier. Your hosts are Puerto Rican, so you're going to hear some Spanglish de vez en cuando here on the Mestizo Podcast. It's part of who we are. On this episode, we're joined by Reverend Orlando Crespo, National Director of La Fe and InterVarsity Ministries. We revisit his groundbreaking book, Being Latino in Christ, Finding Wholeness in Your Ethnic Identity, nearly 20 years after it first published. We ask him about how the last 20 years have expanded his insights, what he would change about the book, and how to bring reconciliation between white and Afro-Latinos, Latino immigrants, and the diaspora children. So sientas en casa, make yourself at home, and let's get started. Amigo Orlando, bienvenidos al podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Emmanuel. It's wonderful to be here with you, and I, I look forward to our time together. Now, you are calling in from the Bronx. Are you New Yorkers straight through and through? Am I talking to two New Yorkers today? Uh, no, I'm, a, I'm actually a Masarican from, <clears throat> from Western Massachusetts, Springfield, Massachusetts. From Springfield. But uh, I met my wife in college at Colgate University. Uh, she's a Bronx woman. And so she kind of laid out an ultimatum that if I wanted to be married to her, uh, I needed to be in the Bronx. So, yeah, 33 years ago, I moved to the Bronx to get married and also to start campus ministry with, uh, with InterVarsity. I, I got a, another question in light of that, brother. Are you, are you a literal turncoat? Did you turn from the Boston Red Sox to the New York Yankees? You know, I, I grew up uh, with a dad who was a, a Yankees fan and a brother who was uh, a, a pirate, Pittsburgh Pirates fan, because Roberto Clemente, of course, was our yeah. hero. So I think, you, you know, probably most Puerto Ricans at that time and most Latinos uh, were uh, Pittsburgh Pirate fans because of him. So we never really rooted for the Red Sox. Uh, they had a little bit of a jaded history because they were one of the last teams to integrate and to bring in, you know, black and Latino players. And so my family never really rooted for, uh, for Boston. Uh, we were fascinating we were Clemente fans. Yeah. Clemente and Yankee <laughs> fans. I like it. I like it. My family was similar. I was in Detroit rocking a Pittsburgh, uh, Pittsburgh, um, Pirates Jersey. Look at me talking about the Steelers. So, so I, I hear yeah. you on that. <laughs> Elizabeth, are you a Yankees fan? I don't think I've asked you about your sports affiliations. <laughs> no, I was. Uh, we were into the Mets at my house, and it was for that very reason. It was because the Mets integrated before the Yankees did. Man, you, that's right. You're both yeah. blowing my mind. <laughs> I go back a little further than the two. Yes. So uh, you know, the Mets. You know, that was that was my grandfather's thing. You had to see my grandfather really rooting for them and getting pissed off if they weren't doing what he said. You know, he's coaching them. <laughs> if they weren't doing what he said, oh, my goodness. But my father was definitely into Clement. Oh, boy. I mean, you Clemente yeah. was the hero. Yeah. There's, there's, a, there's a school not too far from where I live here in Chicago with a big old Clemente mural painted on the side of it. And it's here in Humble Park in Chicago. I mean, every place where there's Puerto Ricans, you're going to find some Clemente. Yeah. I'll say one thing. You guys talk about age and integration and these kinds of things. 
when the Dodgers won the World Series not too long ago here, was that last season? I think it was. Uh, when the Dodgers won the World Series, my grandmother was talking to me about how she used to go to Dodgers games for really cheap. She used to have tickets and would go all the time. And I kept thinking, but that's not possible. You didn't. You don't live in California. What are you talking about? The and then I realized, exactly. Then I realized she was talking about her time when she was living that's in New York right. City, going to see the Dodgers <laughs> in Brooklyn. Evansville. I lived about two blocks away from them. Whoa. It turned that's into, amazing. They turned that area into like a supermarket and stuff like that. But Evansville, that's where the Dodgers used to go. <laughs> Crazy, yeah, crazy. Right. Right. So you, you talk about movement and integration and history, man. Baseball has some of that in some really, really interesting ways. Hey, if you're new to the show, let me say welcome to the mixed space, a space where we live in the hyphen, neither aquí, neither ya. The podcast is called the Mestizo Podcast for a reason, and we're thinking about issues from this kind of in-between, right? perhaps even in between as we talk about integration of some of our people and representation. So welcome to the show. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. If you've been a listener for a long time, remember, even if you submit a review, if you're not subscribed, that review won't show up for us. So make sure that you subscribe, then send us a review. We'd love to see how you've been enjoying the conversation. If you've got questions, doubts, concerns, nonviolent disagreements, leave us a message at 312-725-2995. Leave us a 30-second voicemail with your name, city, y pregunta, and we'll discuss it on the last episode of the season. Again, that's 312-725-2995. You can also submit the question using the form linked on the show notes here. So, Hermano Orlando, you wrote a book called Being Latino in Christ. Finding, your whole, finding Wholeness in Your Ethnic Identity. This book is almost 20 years old. Has that occurred to you? Has that sunk in yet, that this book is almost two decades old? It has occurred to me because I'm, I'm in my mid-50s now. And so I, when I look back and realize I've been in full-time uh, campus ministry for 33 years now, uh, 20 years of that seems like a you know, drop in the bucket. But, uh, but it's been a while, and I've been at this, you know, for a long time. Um, but I do, I do realize that, and I probably will update the book on uh, the coming year or so. University uh, Press has already uh, asked me to, to think about that. So there are places and some things I will probably add uh, going forward. That sounds exciting to me, brother. Let me ask then. Let, let's, let's try to do this act of memory here. We talked about looking back on, on baseball. So let's look back on Nearly 20 years ago, you're in your 30s, you're doing campus ministry. What were some of the things that were happening around you that inspired the creation of this book? Sure. Well, there are, I think, three factors that were important. One is that um, InnoVarsity had uh, a Latino college ministry, but it was only on paper, uh, right? Back then, in the early 80s, you had people like Rudy Hernandez, uh, Isaac Canales, who helped to shape the La Femme ministry. And we had a few staff at that point, but there was still uh, not a lot of Latino campus ministry happening in InterVarsity. And so I became La Fe director in 1999. And so it, it really became an important issue for us to, to develop some resources dealing with this particular issue of uh, Latino ethnic identity. Uh, within the movement of university, Dr. Samuel Barkat, who was our uh, the president, uh, the vice president of university, 
Uh, we're also talking about issues of uh, uh, racial reconciliation. We were looking at shalom in the scriptures and how to develop programs that really dealt with, uh, particularly with the issue of shalom. So finding wholeness in your ethnic identity is about finding shalom in who we are ethnically as Latino Christians in America. So that was an important issue. And then also at that time, uh, we were growing in our Latino staff numbers within our varsity, but many of them were uh, biracial uh, Latinos. Uh, they were Mexican, half Mexican, half white. And so I think there were a lot of questions when we gathered thinking about, um, you know, what does it mean to be Latino and am I Latino enough? You know, uh, do I speak enough Spanish to be considered Latino? Am I culturally Latino enough? And, and so I felt like at that time there were question marks about that. Uh, and so often many of our Latino staff felt excluded from the Latino community um, because they didn't feel that uh, they were Latino enough to, to be considered part of La Fe. So that became a, an important issue for, for us to address as a, as a La, new La Fe ministry. It's interesting that that question continues. Uh, I'll just say this and then I'll let Elizabeth enter in. But I've been thinking about that even as I produced the Mestizo podcast. You know, after the first season, I, I published a, a small note talking about how I was worried I'd be judged for either not being Latino enough or not understanding the issues well enough to host the podcast. And so even I have felt that anxiety. Yeah. Well, go ahead, Elizabeth. Right. What are you thinking about? <clears throat> well, the times um, that Orlando was speaking about, uh, the 80s and so forth, those are also ripe times for things like Puerto Rican studies departments <clears throat> and yes, that's right. so forth. Uh, so that there was already a movement, a fervor of people, you know, coming into their sense of identity and naming themselves and so forth and going back into their roots and their history and finding out those pieces and talking about the colonialism and, you know, it was politicized. And so identity had to do with that. It was a, it was also a movement, right? The church mm -hmm. didn't always talk about that. In New York City, we had um, the movement of uh, the young lords. And, you know, the church didn't talk about identity, didn't talk about colonialism. Because colonialism has to do with, with all of this mix, with this confusion of, you know, how we see ourselves or don't see ourselves and so forth. And the church wasn't talking about that. But these other uh, studies departments were. And people had to deal with that, right? People mm -hmm. had to deal with that. And then how how do you how do you come back to your church and deal with that? How do you not leave the church, right? So I think that your book uh, addressed these pieces. You were able to address them in light of the gospel. Say more about that. Sure, sure. Well, I was going to mention too that at that time, if you recall, uh, Latinos as an ethnic population became the largest. Um, ethnic minority group in America. And so there was, uh, you know, the Latin explosion, right, that, that was happening. I think that was a term that was being used. So there was something that we were celebrating as Latinos, but also I think there was a growing fear in America at the time that Latinos were going to take over. And when I think now even what's happening politically, I think some of it still stems back to some of that early time when we when we uh, had that fast growing population of Latinos. Uh, I think even politically now, some of what we're, we've been dealing with the last four or five years has been about 
this fear of what's going to happen when Latinos continue to, to grow in population. Orlando, did you already have your social science training before writing this book? Because I find that there's a good deal of healthy social science in it in, in really helpful ways. Mm-hmm. And since we're talking about mm-hmm. Chicano study programs, um, you know, Latino Hispanic studies programs, Puerto Rican studies programs, even I wondered how that kind of figured into your mm-hmm. your ability to identify the problem and then to to help solve it or propose a solution for it. Sure, sure. Well, at, at Colgate University. Um, uh, my ma- my major was um, sociology and anthropology, with minor in Latin American studies, and then I also took a healthy dose of uh, course uh, courses in Spanish. You know, Spanish composition, Spanish literature. Uh, I was the director of our. I was the president of our uh, Residencia Hispanica, which was kind of our our Latin American residency house. You know, for two years, I, I did that. So, and that was a time where, <clears throat> you know, you had some affirmative action programs happening. And at Colgate, you had Blacks and Latinos who came in through this uh, uh, affirmative action program called the uh, University Scholars Program. So I remember feeling a sense of alienation where uh, many white students and professors felt we didn't belong there because uh, our SAT scores weren't strong enough to be at a place like Colgate. Uh, And so even then we tended to cling to each other as Latinos, as uh, Blacks and Latinos together, just to overcome this sense of academic inferiority that that was put upon us through a program that was supposed to empower us. It actually um, made us feel inferior to others who thought, we didn't really belong there. We were just kind of let in. Uh, so I think for me, even in my college years, I felt a sense of need to get in touch with my Latino roots. And then as a Christian, um, my struggle was, um, how do I accept you know, white evangelical Christianity? Because uh, I was Catholic and the intervarsity group was predominantly white. But it's interesting that it was, uh, it was white people who made me feel most alienated at Colgate, but it was white Christians who helped me feel most a part of the family of God uh, at the wow. very place where I was feeling alienation. So I think that's why my connection to diversity has been so strong, because it was the place of, in many ways, redemption of the potential of white Christianity to embrace me as a Latino Christian. I'm not sure that all of us would have such a powerful testimony. So that's an important one to share. Thank you, brother. I, I think uh, I think some of us would say that white evangelicalism has been a, po- a place of pain, a place of trauma on some level. So so thank you for sharing that. The possibility that there might be a difference there, that there might be a, a remnant, if we can use that biblical word. Uh, right. Let me ask. It's been 20 years or close. It's been close to 20 years since the book was published. Surely people have reached out to you after having read the book. What have been some of the stories or experiences that you've heard from people who have reached out to you after having read the book? Sure. Uh, yeah, I think, um, you know, for the first few years, it, was, it felt like it was radio silence. I didn't hear much. Uh, I didn't even hear much from in a varsity staff because a lot of what I write in the book is, is uh, content that we had, we had learned well dealing with issues of race and justice and multi-ethnic diversity within InterVarsity. 
But later, you know, the fourth, fifth year in, I began to hear from students, you know, at conferences who would say, you know, your book really changed my life. It was the first place where I began to engage my ethnic identity as a Latino Christian. Uh, and so there were places throughout the country, uh, even like the Tampa area that used my book to, de to develop uh, a Latino campus outreach even. And so I began to hear stories like that. Uh, there's one story too of uh, even a Latina who was not a Christian here in New York City, who became, became part of university. Her staff worker read the book with her. They did kind of a, you know, because I have questions at the end of each chapter and they use those questions as a study guide. And reading the book, she became a Christian. Uh, she became a follower of Christ. And, uh, and that has gone on now to become a staff worker with, with InterVarsity, with our ministry. And is a team leader now with, with InterVarsity. So stories like that, I just felt like finally, uh, you know, I felt by the Holy Spirit that it was the right book to, to write at the time. But for years, I felt like I'd made a mistake. I missed the mark. And then slowly stories started coming back and I felt uh, affirmed again by God that I heard correctly at the time. Is it possible your book was ahead of its own time? I wonder because it, it reads as if it was written in the last five years. My pastor, uh, knowing mm -hmm. that we were preparing for this interview, you know, World Outspoken's offices are in, we rent space from my church here in Chicago. And so my pastor saw, you know, that I was doing some prep for this interview, that kind of thing, saw the book and decided to read it. And he told me the other day, I asked him, I was like, hey, do you have any questions that I should include in the interview? And he goes, honestly, ask him how he wrote this book so long ago, because it feels like it was written yesterday. How, how is it that so yeah. many people are struggling with their identity in Christ, their Latino identity in Christ today still, when this resource and this conversation has been going on for so long? What do you think about yeah, that? that's right. Well, I think it was probably ahead of its time because at that time, InterVarsity was ahead of other parachurch ministries when it came to uh, racial reconciliation, multi-ethnicity. Uh, when I came on staff in 1987, um, we also um, got our first VP of multi-ethnicity, Dr. Sam Barkat. So that was ahead of its time. You know, when you think about organizations that really are serious about moving forward and these issues of diversity, it's not about just being ethnically diverse, it's about also inclusion and empowerment and so I think at the time we had a VP who was empowered to bring change. And that was uh, Dr. Samuel uh, Barquette uh, under Steve Hayner's leadership, who was the president at the time. So I was probably ahead because the varsity was ahead. But I think the, the arguments or the, the issues are still fresh because, um, you know, when you look at the, the Helio Elizondo's book, um, he wrote The Galilean Journey. He's written a few other things. He talks about this ongoing mestizaje, right? And uh, Justo Gonzalez talks about, you know, the Mexican-American is, is a double mestizaje. It's, it's the Mexican, right, who's uh, mestizo from his or her Spanish and uh, indigenous roots. But then the American side is, um, is a Mexican and white American, uh, uh, those roots. So it's kind of a double mestizaje. So we're seeing an ongoing mestizaje in this country of uh, Latinos that are continuing to, to enter into this. So the questions are always going to be fresh because 
uh, Latin America is so close to the U.S. You know, we're, I think, uh, in terms of demographics, we're the third or fourth largest um, Latino country in, in the Americas in terms of Latino population. Uh, we don't often uh, uh, talk about that, but we have so many Latinos in this country. But it's a complexity that's unlike anything happening in Central and South America. And, um, and it's a fresh issue that we always have to explore. Um, and the, the issue with, with colonization is still very real. You know, we've seen some things even with Puerto Rico, with Hurricane Maria and the places where uh, we were treated so badly, you know, with the, the past administration um, that, um, you know, that there are still issues of colonization and, uh, and kind of dominant, subdominant issues with Latinos, uh, even with Puerto Ricans that uh, we still have to address and deal with. And so I think, um, you know, Puerto Rico is still a colony. And so we're still dealing with issues of empire and colonization that are just really fresh for this moment today. Uh, even when you look at issues of immigration, we have, uh, with university, we have students who are DACA students who are dealing with even a greater complexity of what it means to be Latino in America that has to do with issues of citizenship that I think is one of the issues I didn't explore in my book that if I were to explore further today, um, I would probably, I think we need to deal with that issue of citizenship uh, and identity uh, as well. Because I think it's one of those intersections, you know, we'll talk about intersectionality. Uh, citizenship, I think is a critical one I mean, even today, um, the DACA issue, right? I think the House is looking at ways to kind of move that forward to give citizenship to over 2 million uh, DACA students. And, and uh, so I think it's an important issue, even of identity and faith today. You know, Orlando, there's a couple of things that you have said that are really important. First of all, um, issues of identity are not theoretical pieces. They're things that we live into. And so the circumstances that we live in that create the confusion of identity. Uh, when, you're in, when you're living in an organization that is seeking to undo that, to live that differently, to create a different way to be in relationship with one another, that is very, very helpful for bringing insight and perception for uh, the kind of writing that you were able to do. And to do that intentionally, as it seems that you have said your organization has done, means that conversations have to be going on, right? And when we come to college is when we deal most heavily with these issues, when we have to really understand who we belong to and, and how that affects our sense of vocation and place in the world and um, relationships that we are forming that are going to be lifetime relationships. And so for an organization that deals with college students to uh, be thinking about that and living into that, I think that was extremely important. The other thing I want to talk about is <clears throat> colonization because colonization um, is a mentality. It created a mentality. Uh, colonization, uh, the use of racism as a way of colonizing people was a way of creating a mentality 
that would keep people down, that would keep them away from the truth of who they really were, and that would keep people away from each other and the truth of who we can be in community. Because colonization had to distort all of those relational pieces and had to distort especially who we are as persons so that then they can create a lie in the place of that truth and continue to make us believe that lie about ourselves so that they can continue to um, exercise superiority over us and domination over our land and, and political and socioeconomic uh, domination. And so it's a mentality. And it's a mentality that we live into. It creates structures, right? Y las estructuras crean hábitos. So, son hábitos de vivir, son hábitos de pensar, son hábitos de yo mirarte a ti, de tú mirarme a mí. You know, those, those are the lenses that are created for us to see who we are and who we're not. You know, the story that you tell about <clears throat> your family member and, you know, the self-hate and all of that. You know, those lenses are created there for us. So it's a whole mentality. And we have to look into those mentality pieces and how structure continues to make that mentality live in our, in our midst. But part of what has happened also in Latin America, which comes back to us here and is compounded by the um, history of this country and racism, is that those who have come from African roots, you hide, you hide that story. No, it's, it's, it's the most shameful story. You don't, you don't have anything to do with that story. You hide that story. And so people have had to bring that out. People have had to, to go back to that, to think about that, etc. And instead, we talk about classism in Latin America, right? Because, you know, yo, yo, yo quiero gente de color. Aquí nadie habla de, de, de color. You know, that's the, eso es para allá, para Estados Unidos. No. Who are the poorest people that we have in our Latin American countries and why? Preach. So we have to, that that right. whole piece is hidden. But when we come here and all of a sudden we have to deal with that piece, we don't have the tools to talk about it. Our history is, is, is different. We have to understand what that means. And then we come into, especially at the time that you write this book, everything's black and white. It's, it's a zebra country, right? Everything's black and white. Where do we fit as Latinos? I remember being in seminary and they used to have these uh, black, white uh, conversations and that sort of thing. And a friend of mine went through that. And at one occasion, they, they told everyone, you know, okay, all the black people over here, all those who are white over here. And, you know, people divided themselves. And all of the people who were Latinos said, they stood in the middle and they were like, well, what's wrong with you people? You got to pick one or the other. And they said, well, it's hard for us to pick one or the other. And they told them, well, go where you feel most comfortable. So they went to one of the brothers' houses and they, you know, brought out the popcorn and sat there and had their own conversation. So, you know, there wasn't the space for Latinos to have an important conversation, right? 
And so your book begins to open that space. If you were redoing the book, how would you want to reopen that space? What new influences and, and what new history has come out, right? For us as Latinos, what new conversations are, are today present that you would want to take into consideration in order for your book to become a new space for dialogue? What would you do with that? Yeah, no, that's a good question. And uh, I think the complexities are much greater today. Um, you know, one of those complexities is, um, you know, we talked about colonization. Uh, as, as Latino Christians uh, inter interconnect with white evangelicalism or even white Catholicism, you know, the danger is that, um, you know, in those circles, issues of identity or ethnic identity are, are seen as really negative. There's no space to talk about those issues. And, um, and so it could become a control issue, like you've mentioned, like colonization, right? Like how you look at yourself racially was a way of controlling and dominating how you felt about yourself. I remember um, reading Pedagogy of the Oppressed by Paulo Frieri. He, he talks about how the oppressor uh, does certain things to have you view yourself as the oppressed the way they view you. And the full complete oppression is when you see yourself as the oppressor sees you. Like that, that's when the moment of complete oppression happens, when you see yourself and your people and your community the way the oppressor sees you and wants you to see yourself. And so I think there's some danger in um, white uh, evangelical, white Catholic circles to not allow people of color in their churches to explore their ethnic identity. I think the fear is, oh, well, that's going to bring division. And one of the things I talk about in my book is that, no, with um, ethnic minority people in America, the more you understand who you are in this place, right? Because theologically, we talk about social location as an important factor of how we, what we bring to the scriptures and how we see it. Everybody has a social location. And so our experience of oppression and injustice and classism and all of that is part of our social location as Latinos in, in white America, in white uh, Christian circles and white churches. So we've got to be given the space to explore that, to understand our context so that we can fully engage and interact in predominantly white circles uh, in America and even in white Christian circles. And so, uh, so I think that's an important factor that, uh, you know, because I think this white Christian nationalism poses a real danger to, um, to true authentic uh, uh, multi-ethnic diversity in our churches today. And to kingdom values, right? When persons who aren't white begin to ask new questions mm -hmm. from a, a gospel perspective, but we're asking new questions and we're critiquing that particular tradition in order to expand it and in order to deepen it, uh, we begin to expose some of the stuff that was planted in there that shouldn't be there. And right. we may need to uproot some of that stuff, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not the division, it's the truth that yeah. might be coming forth, right? We have to take a quick break, but before we do, I want to say that 
what you're both talking about is the fact that we do theology in La Brega, right? In the middle of the of the pain and 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 day to day, lo cotidiano is what other people like to say, right? But but that's we in Puerto right. Rico we say we do theology in La Brega. That's our social location. I want to read the quote from the book that you uh, the quote that you kind of paraphrased there, Orlando, and then we'll take our break. Uh, you talked about people fearing diversity, right? Particularly white evangelicals. You know they're being taught to, right? Uh, I, I'll say the name quite uh, quite unabashedly, but Tucker Carlson has made a platform of saying, hey, we need to fear diversity in this country, right? So there are people out here perpetuating that message. But here's your quote. You say, many fear emphasizing their cultural identity because this might need to lead to tribalism, a condition in which you care about and fight for only the issues that affect your group at the expense of others in need. A healthy ethnic identity should actually lead to greater appreciation for the differences of others. Because you know how valuable your own distinctiveness is. Indeed, there's value in our Latino distinctives. Let's take a quick break, and we'll come back and continue our conversation with Hermano Crespo. We've been having a conversation with, with nuestro hermano, Orlando Crespo, author of Being Latino in Christ, Finding Wholeness in Your Ethnic Identity. One of the things that we started to talk about is some of the ways that we internalize the kinds of identities that have been given to us by, uh, by an oppressive group. We, we brought, brought up uh, Paulo Freire, which, you know, uh, Pedagogy of the Oppressed is one of those landmark books, but we've been talking about this. And you know, this whole season, Orlando, we've been talking about some of the dangers of assimilation. And you use a phrase in your book a couple times. You even at one point say that it was an identification of you. But you use this phrase, white Latinos. You talk about white Latinos. And you talk about some of the ways in which white Latinos reflect the kind of self-hatred. You even tell a story in the book about a dark-skinned Latino, so, so one who was visibly dark, who was concerned about other visibly dark Latinos moving into the suburban neighborhood where you guys were living at the time. How he didn't want them to move in because they'd ruin the neighborhood and they're loud and they don't know how to keep things clean, et cetera, et cetera. So you talk about how this, this man had so internalized this message that he was concerned about his own people. Can you tell us a little bit more about how this gets formed in us, our, our sense of selves? How is it that we become white Latinos? Yeah. Well, there have been, uh, there was a sociological study uh, done a while back that looks at um, uh, uh, ethnic minorities who move into the suburbs, predominantly white suburbs, and that there's such a, an overwhelming desire, uh, which we could call peer pressure, right, to fit in, right? Because uh, there are so many things that alienate you from a probably white neighborhood that, um, you start wanting to try to fit in. And so you try to find those places, those places of connection. I think one of those places could be the political views uh, that our white neighbors have that we end up kind of taking on as our own. 
And I think um, some of that could lead to a kind of a self-hatred. Sometimes uh, some of the political issues that are out there are very derogatory, very negative looking, particularly towards undocumented immigrants in this country, right? There's a, those false narratives that are out there that immigrants come in and they take our jobs and and they're ruining, ruining our economy and ruining our healthcare system. So much of that is lies, but we end up um, taking on or acquiring some of the views of our white neighbors, which ends up um, causing us to to deny and to look negatively towards our own people, right? So that's what happened to uh, my uh, dark-skinned relative, right? When he when he got accepted, all of a sudden, he he takes on the perspective of his white neighbors towards others who who are who are moving in, who look like him and who are Latino. And so, part of it is that pre- peer pressure. We all long to fit in, but we end up taking on views that sometimes that are are hurtful to ourselves, literally, and to our own people. Um, I think there is a Latino identity in America. Uh, I think, you know, I mentioned in my book that often we do have a view ethnically that's from our own country of origin, uh, that's still strong. But I think there are many second, third, fourth generations that have a an American Latino identity. And so for me, being Puerto Rican, when I think about what's happening to undocumented immigrants, even though all Puerto Ricans are citizens, right, uh, from, you know, from our history, right, uh, from laws that were made. But for me, as a Puerto Rican Latino, uh, I care about what happens at the border. I care about what happens to our DACA students uh, that are struggling every single day to, to make it, you know, in the college system. And so I, th- I just think that it's dangerous when we start um, hating ourselves to the point where we start looking down negatively upon our own communities, whether they're documented or not. I, th- I think we're to, we end up in a very dangerous um, place where it's, um, uh, we, we, we don't fulfill the great commission, a great commandment to love our neighbor. Our neighbors are our Latino undocumented neighbors. And we end up hating them. And so we become antithetical uh, to the gospel itself that we so love as Christians. And that's really scary for me. Amen. Let, let me ask you, brother, you work with college students all the time. So, so let me ask this question in, with relation to the kind of formation work that you do. How would you advise a Latino, Latina who realizes now that she's been operating as a white Latina? a white Latino, how would you, how would you advise them? Yeah. Uh, what would you say to them? Right. Uh, well, I would tell them to read my book. And in chapter three, <laughs> I talk about, I have this, this identity grid, right. Of uh, it's assimilation on um, one quadrant and then ethnicity and to determine where you fall. Sometimes you may be high assimilation, right. Which I think white Latinos would fall under high assimilationists. Um, and they, but there's some work that each, each person in each quadrant needs to do. And so I think for a white Latino who identifies more with being white American, I'd say, uh, they need to connect with their own, you know, find their own communities, explore their history. I think history is really important. Um, it means if you're a Puerto Rican that you go to Puerto Rico and you spend time, you know, in, in uncomfortable settings to understand 
that side of you as as uh, as a Latino or Latina. Uh, there's work to be done, uh, and so I'd say that um, yeah, that uh, begin to connect with others who are Latino who have a high sense of identity, uh, and begin to uh, allow them to teach us and to grow. And then we have great writers, you know. Uh, uh, Dr. Elizabeth Gonde Frazier is one of them uh, on our podcast right now. We've got people like Justo and Virgilio and uh, Dr. Raymond Rivera. Those are those are books. Those are resources of discipleship that can help shape us into people who uh, who love ourselves and the way God has made us as Latinos. That grid you mentioned in the book, there's a there's a section of that grid that stood out to me. It's kind of the the reverse of white Latinos. It's a Latino who, because of racial trauma, wants complete disassociation, a kind of separatist, uh, completely detached yeah. from kind of the white world, evangelicalism, all these kinds of things. Um, I'm not sure that they would entirely receive a white Latino, at least maybe not comfortably. So how would you? So I asked you how you would advise the white Latino. How would you mm-hmm, advise mm-hmm. the one in that grid? I forget what you called it, but but the person who has this kind of racialized anger. Yeah, it's kind of like high identity, but low assimilation. So those would be, you know, on, on our college campuses, those that are part of Mecha, a Mecha group or Lasso, some of these um, non-Christian, you know, highly milit- militant groups that can, I think, move more towards tribalism, which is what we are trying to avoid uh, as Latino Christians. You know, as a Latino Christian, the Lordship of Christ tempers that tribalism because we're always going back to the cross, going back to scripture to love our neighbor at all, you know, at, um, at all points. But remember, loving our neighbor also means, you know, that great um, commandment is love God, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so uh, the ability to love ourselves in healthy ways informs us. And so uh, how to love our, our neighbor. And so that's why I think uh, loving our identity is part of that. Uh, but that's where, um, yeah, well, I think we've seen students who have been rejected, right? Who are biracial Latinos who have been rejected by groups like Mecha and Lasso on our campuses. And, you know, part of it is to, to accept that, to, to accept some of the hard realities of that, because some of them are coming from, racialized trauma, which we're seeing is a very real thing now. Um, the Seattle School, they have a center called the Alander Center that's dealing with these issues of trauma. And they're exploring even more you know, racial trauma, which is not just microaggressions in our country, but real aggressions that Blacks and Latinos, and now that Asian Americans are experiencing. You know, we just had this... Um, this murder of, uh, of eight people, six of whom were Asian American women, that's, um, those are like terrible aggressions. Those are terrorist acts against uh, people you know, of Asian descent that we're seeing. And we're seeing more and more of those um, aggressions against us that um, you know, is, a, is a real danger in our country right now. Uh, but I, th- I think it's accepting um, that there are Latinos who have that trauma and to understand it and to push through uh, yeah, in order to have a greater sense of identity. Sometimes it's also to find Christian circles. I think La Fe is one of those Christian circles where we really push hard on ethnic identity development, but also on learning our history, learning our roots, learning about 
uh, the dangers of empire and colonial uh, colonialism and dominant subdominant issues that are, you know, part of maybe critical race theory. And Robert Cho Romero talks ab about that uh, in his book. You know, there are some positive things about critical race theory that we can't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Uh, we've got to look at them as Christians and say, you know, these are important issues. Uh, and so I, I would I would recommend that. that yeah. um, You're talking about a reformation, right? Uh, uh, a reformation, yeah. a building up of the person. Uh, one, there is a there has to be some deconstruction there. I know that that word is quite popular in sometimes ways that maybe are, are excessive. But you are talking about yes. tearing down certain certain aspects so that we can be reformed where we, we find, I love the word, right? Wholeness, shalom mm -hmm. in being mm -hmm. Latino in Christ. God made us, God made me and you Puerto Rican, Elizabeth Puerto Rican on purpose. That wasn't an accident. That's right. And that's so right. <laughs> I think that's what you're getting at there. Um, yeah. Go ahead, Elizabeth. You know, trauma <clears throat> is not just something that you can always push through. Um, yeah. it's, it, it hits much deeper places than the cognitive. And um, the forming of community where people can begin to feel safe. The, uh, the living into that safety is important before someone can feel like they could step out and you know push through X, Y, or Z. <clears throat> How does uh, La Fe do that? You know, um, I may understand that I want to be in a different place, but right now, right now, Orlando, like, I can't be there. I might say that to you. I totally right understand now, that. I can't be there. Right now, if I see um, someone who represents the group that has done me wrong, everything in me uh, says no. Everything in me um, is a red flag. And it's like, no way, you know, I have to push that away. I, I can't move toward it. Uh, what do we do in that, in that space, in that time? Yeah, yeah. No, I, th I think that's an uh, excellent uh, question and concern. And I, I think that's where, um, for me, uh, uh, learning from our, our Black uh, Christian brothers and sisters is so important because uh, I think the understanding with... Um, you know, with black leaders in America is that these issues of race and racism, it's not for people of color to solve. It's a white problem. And so, you know, we can't take on this problem and try to solve it for white people. This is something that white people, white Christians need to solve. And so I think there may be seasons where it's okay and proper to step back, back and to accept that I need to be in places and communities, like you're saying, of safety and protection. Uh, and I think that's where, as, uh, you know, with La Fe, we try to do that. We have ethnic-specific conferences. We're having one next year with our La Fe uh, and varsity staff, where we allow our Black, Latino, Asian, even our uh, mixed-race um, uh, community to step back and to have some family time together where they can talk about their hurts, their trauma, and not be judged by it, uh, not be criticized by it, but to gain strength, emotional, 
physical even and spiritual strength for the continued battle. We need those places of safety. And I have to say, I don't know if you agree with me, Elizabeth, but I think even in our Latino churches that are Spanish speaking, we don't understand that, that um, our second, third, fourth generation Latinos need those spaces of safety where they can talk about what it means to be Latino in America, where we can talk about Mission Integral, right? And what it means to hold those two things in tension, the gospel, and also the fact that we're called to love our neighbor and how that rolls out in terms of issues of justice and mercy and grace. Uh, we need to have those spaces, even in our Latino churches that are not present. We're trying to create those spaces on our campuses with La Fe, with our campus ministers to say, it's okay to talk about this. It's okay to be angry. I think right now it's okay to be angry with um, the hatred that we see, uh, of course, um, against um, Asian Americans, but we've seen it, uh, the scapegoating against Latinos and Latino immigrants has been ongoing for years now. And it's, it would be, it's appalling to Jesus. It needs to be appalling to us and unacceptable. It is a hatred of the immigrant that is just wrong and it's unbiblical. And I would even say it's anti-Christ. And so, you know, I'm sorry to say that against our white evangelical, you know, and, and white Catholic churches that often see the immigrant and demonize them. That is anti-Christ, antithetical to the scriptures, and we need to repent of it. And uh, and it's a place of, of reconciliation that needs to happen. It's the work that our white Christian brothers and sisters need to do. And so this may be a season, Elizabeth, where we step back as Latinos and get the, get the trauma healing that we need, deal with it, because it has been an onslaught. I have felt it. Many of our La Fe staff have felt it. And, and, um, and so that's the reality we're facing right now. It's, it's, uh, it's complex because one of the things I want to point out, you know, you talked about anger, and I'm glad that you, that you mentioned anger because part of healing, when you've been in this uh, space of being kicked down, yeah. part of the healing is when you come up from there, it's, it's rage. Rage That's is right. actually a sign of healing. And people don't know what to do with rage, right? And we tell them that it's not Christian and, you know, all of that. But if you can channel rage, if you can channel rage and channel it into places of, of truth-telling, the kind of truth-telling that's necessary right now, you know, uh, for ourselves and for our white brothers and sisters, that's important. You know, how do I channel my rage? How do we talk about that, right? In the same way that I could, you know, be dancing in the spirit and people sort of say, you know, dance over here and they, you know, they, they come around me and they gently uh, direct my dance or whatever. Uh, we need to do that for our rage because our rage is also in the spirit. If I could dare to say such a thing, right? Um, I can remember a time when I wouldn't preach in a white church because I was just so, so angry. And I knew that God was doing a work in me. And I said, God, I can't. I can't do that because I'm, I'm going to be hurtful. And I don't want to be hurtful, you know. And I, I need to get through this 
so that I'm not hurting. And then <clears throat> about a year later, um, I was invited again to, you know, preach at a church and the Lord said, you're ready. And I said, okay, I'm going to say yes. And what do you think? I had a preacher. What do you think <laughs> that the liturgical year had this scripture? <laughs> I can't wait to hear this. Invited you. It invited <laughs> you to talk about that very subject, right? Ooh. And I said, Ay, bendito, me fastidié yo con esto. I'm going to have to, this is my test, right? This is my test. You know, like I couldn't come in and just talk about something neutral. You know what I'm saying? Something bland. No, it was a, a scripture that was very challenging. And I said, well, ni modo, I have to do it. I have to do it. I have to check my spirit as I do it, right? I have to check my spirit. That's right. yeah. <laughs> but then I was ready to channel. Then I was ready to channel, right? And we have to talk about rage. It's complex because if we all step back at this point, um, people are in places of power in the church. I mean, white power is still for real. And if we step back and we stop the resistance, then... These folk who are in power, they're, they're, they're going to rant and go off, right? So we have to find out who's still okay with, you know, holding that piece and, and working at that piece and, and who needs to, you know, step back. We almost have to rotate it. You know what I'm saying? Because we can't just totally step back. I, yeah. I can't. You know, we have to be vigilant. I'm sorry. We do, we do. Orlando, we want to be respectful for your time, but I have one last question before we wrap up here. You talked about the stepping back in relation to Latinos on college campuses, but you talked about how sometimes these first-generation migrant churches aren't really safe spaces either. I have a kind of curious question about your ministry at La Fe, maybe giving you an opportunity to brag a little bit about La Fe. What's the relationship between your parachurch ministry and local churches surrounding it. How are you inviting La Iglesia Latina to be a part of the work that you're doing? Yeah, I mean, I I, I have to admit it has been a challenge. <clears throat> it hasn't been it hasn't been easy. But I think with one of the things that we're trying to do is is to uh, welcome Latino pastors and church leaders to more and more of our events. So we have local La Fe conferences and events, even national La Fe student conferences, where we're trying to invite more and more uh, church leaders to, to be a part of that, to, to come and be a part of that. The other thing uh, for me is part of my role as a national leader is to you know, be part of podcasts like this where we get the word out. And I'm also part of the Latino Leadership Circle, which is uh, kind of a, a, a think tank of Latino pastors. Yeah, and church shout out to David here. Ramos. Yes, David Ramos, good friend of mine, uh, the, the president and founder of Latino mm -hmm. Leadership Circle. Uh, and so, so part of it is is being connected with pastors there as well, who want to create those spaces, who understand the need for it. Uh, the hardest pastors are often those that are first-generation pastors who came from Latin America to pastor a church, and they don't understand some of the issues of race uh, in America or issues of generational divides here. 
who often are not open to some of these conversations, don't feel a need for it, just don't have a, a grid for it, a theological grid for it even. And so, um, you know, so that's part of the double alienation, right? We feel uh, the racism on one side as Latinos, we feel the alienation from our own communities in some of these spaces where we're trying to grow theologically and, uh, and socially as well. Um, because of our social location and the struggles we're facing. So, um, so yeah, so we try to, you know, bring pastors in. Uh, I try to connect with as many pastors. I'm part of NALIC as well, National Evangelical uh, uh, Coalition. And so I'm always trying to connect with new leaders, new pastors. Well, we Uh, might say uh, then, la invitación está abierta, right? Connect with la fe. If you're a pastor listening to what we're talking about here. Oh, absolutely. La invitación está abierta. Hey, Brother Crespo, thank you so much for writing this book. I do hope that you take InterVarsity's invitation to update it. I, I hope that you take that call and invitation. I, I know that many would, would receive it as a gift. Um, and I'm glad that you shared some, some honesty about some of the pains and realities. This conversation about anger and separation, uh, it ministered to me. So, so, so thank you for, mm-hmm. for being a part of that with, with Elizabeth and I. Let me remind the audience If you have a question, doubt, concern, if you want to respond to what you've heard, leave us a message at 312-725-2995-312-725-2995. Leave us a 30-second voicemail with your name, city, y pregunta. And as I mentioned, Elizabeth and I will react to those on the last episode of the season. You can also submit those questions following the link in the show notes. Always follow World Outspoken at World Outspoken on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Are there any handles you want to share for La Fe, uh, Orlando? Uh, no, we do have a, a new resource written by Steve Tamayo, one of our staff, on Latino identity. It's a series of Bible studies looking at the scriptures of issues of ethnic identity uh, generally. Nice. So that's a great resource. If there's a link to that, make sure to get it to me. I'll get it up on the show notes, and we'll share it with our audience. Other than that, Thank you, brother. Fue de bendición. Thank you. Elizabeth, you get the last benediction. These conversations continue to be open-ended. We're really happy that you um, have come and brought new um, information and ways for us to, to look at it, to, to pull at it, etc. And um, it's like a turkey at Thanksgiving. We're going to keep pull, pull, pulling from it. And thank That's you right. so much <laughs> for... Um, bringing some of that meat to this conversation. Sure, sure. Again, it's a pleasure and uh, being with you on this podcast, I have so much respect with the work you've done uh, with the Latino community. And so I feel honored to uh, to be a part of this podcast with you both. Praise God. Tato, Tato Dicho. Bendiciones, mi gente.